Uh, as we've heard already, today is the beginning of the season of Advent, which starts with the first four Sundays, um, normally in December, but not always, but it's the four Sundays before Christmas. And the word Advent, we don't use it much these days, but you might say the Advent of this new beginning. It's, it's the coming or the appearing of a new thing. Advent means coming. And it's a time in the church calendar, for those who follow the church calendar, where we are encouraged to look forward, not just to Christmas, but where we remember the coming of God in the flesh, in Jesus. And also when we look forward to his second coming, his appearing. I like to prefer to say his appearing because I don't think he's left us, has he? He says he's with us always. But his appearing. We now wait and look forward with eager expectation that he will appear again. In fact, ever since that first promise way back in the very beginning of the Bible, back in Genesis 3, where God makes that promise, the seed of the woman will come and he'll crush the head of the serpent. God's people have been waiting in hope for that one to come. And today, as Christian believers, we rejoice in his coming. And at Christmas, we rejoice in his birth. Easter, we rejoice in where that led, his atoning death on the cross and his resurrection. And now we wait as he's been ascended into heaven. We wait for his appearing again. We look forward to it in hope, which is our theme from Advent this morning. And so in this time of Advent, um, there's four themes genuinely of Advent, hope, peace, joy and love. Not necessarily in that order. Um, and it just so happens, it's sort of sat down a while ago and we looked at uh, the Bible readings and what we're going to do at Christmas and how we're going through Matthew and we sort of, well, we're getting up to Matthew 12 and this passage finishes with hope. So rather than stopping last week with Matthew, this is the end of our mini-series on Matthew. We'll pick it up again in the new year, but this is the beginning of our Advent series as well. A little bit of overlap. The very end of the reading you would have heard, Until he, he won't break a bruised reed or a smouldering wick, he will not quench. Until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles, that is, all the nations, anyone who's not a Jew... In his name, the Gentiles will hope. Now, before we get to that this morning, just want to take a moment, have a bit of a confession to make. In the last couple of weeks, things haven't been too good, and I've acted a little bit foolishly. There's one point where, with not a lot of wisdom and total lack, I guess, of self-control and discernment that you might expect from a pastor, um, I acted quite foolishly and a few people here have found out and I could offer all sort of excuses and claim all sorts of ignorance but um, I went ahead and did what I shouldn't have done and I need your forgiveness. Miriam, at the working bee a couple of weeks ago I whippersnipped the top of your native grasses on the bank there. They had a quite a severe haircut. I'm sorry. <laughs> Would you forgive my lack of horticultural wisdom and lack of self-control, please? Now, Jeff did try to alleviate my guilt. You guys were getting worried then, weren't you? <laughs> Jeff did try to alleviate my guilt. He said, well, maybe some of the weed killer I had sort of wandered off and killed the tops, and that's why you thought that. I think he was just trying to be kind and share the blame, but I think it was all me. Well, I know it was all me. I'm sorry. Bob tells me they're pretty hardy. They will grow back. Is that right? With a bit of love and care. So if you, yeah, the little native, I was all on my own, should have asked. The thing is, apologies and jokes aside, however worried you might have been getting, 
Jesus would never do that. Back when I was growing up, there was a big movement, the What Would Jesus Do movement. You all got a little rubber wristband and had T-shirts and everything and WWJD. And the passage we've just heard from both Isaiah and Matthew tells us Jesus would never go and do that. A bruised reed, a little bit of native grass, a bit of flax, even if it looks like it's dying, bruised and battered. He won't break. He definitely wouldn't whip a snippet. A smouldering wick, he will not quench. Walk along Sturt Gorge, along almost any creek or marshy area. There's a little stack of them up on the hillside here. We played youth, uh, frisbee with the youth group last night and almost ran into a whole stack of reeds. They're actually pretty difficult to get rid of once they get hold, aren't they? <laughs> In a creek, a river. But they're abundant. They're cheap. They're fragile. If you pull one up for a weaving basket or pull a bundle up and you got a, or a pen or a quill as they would have in Jesus' day and it broke, you just grab another one and try again. Just throw it out. It's no good. Remember little Moses? Placed by his mother in a basket made of reeds and placed in the bulrushes and floated along on the river. Plenty of them around. And so easy, you just walk past them and they bend and bruise. But the Messiah, Isaiah tells us, the promised one to come, even a bruised reed, he wouldn't break. He would not trample on those who are already weak and struggling. And Matthew is telling us here, this Messiah, the one Isaiah promised, had it Behold, the former things have come to pass, at the end of our reading, the new things now I declare, and I declare them before they spring forth, I'm telling you of them. And now Matthew is saying, everything that God was declaring back then before they sprang forth, guess what? It's here. Jesus is the one. He's the one who won't break the bruised reed. He's the one who won't snuff out the burning wick. You know how a candle, when you blow it out, sort of just has a little glimmer there and it sort of the smoke sort of rises up, little wisps that sort of get up your nose if you don't get rid of them. You sort of... Jesus wouldn't even do that. No, he would actually fan it into flame and give life to that burning glimmer of flame. Now we know those images pretty well. We know this verse, don't we, about bruised reeds and burning wicks. Many of us would. But it's not really about candles and reeds or native grasses on the riverbanks. It's about people. It's about the teacher at the end of the year after finishing hundreds of reports. It's about the mum or the wife overworked and feeling underappreciated. It's about the ageing grandparents who feel like they can't do what they used to do and don't know how much of not much more or not much that they're willing to keep on doing. It's about the husband and father who can't seem to say no to work and yes to things at home or switch off from one to the other. It's about the young person who longs and wonders how long before they might have someone to love in their singleness. Or about the child who just wants someone to notice them and love them. 
or the person struggling with who they are and what they are and working out how they fit in, if they fit in at all. We are the bruised reeds. You are the burning wick. And sometimes I know you'll feel like you're hardly hanging on to life, barely a glimmer of hope or faith to keep on going. And yet this passage is really about the heart of God, the heart of Christ, his son, towards us who are bruised and battered, who feeling like we've hardly got a breath left in us, whose hearts may have grown cold and maybe our faith has just died down to barely anything left. And many a person would say, right, I've had enough. You haven't got anything left in you. You're done with. You're finished. But not Jesus. Not our Father in heaven. Have you been hearing it these past few weeks? If you've been here, Jesus is the one who is gentle and lowly in heart. He's the one who desires mercy, not sacrifice. You are of more worth, we heard earlier, than many sparrows. The heart of the good shepherd for his sheep, helpless and harassed without a shepherd. In the midst of wolves and all the voices of the world trying to tell us to do this and do that or try to get right with God and get on his good list. But his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Bruised and battered we might feel, weak and frail in so many ways and failing we may well be. But this one, my servant, the Lord calls him, the one whom I love, the one whom I've chosen, the one with whom I'm well pleased, when he comes, he won't trample you. He won't stomp you and say, nah, you're finished with. He won't snuff you out just because you've barely got anything left. As Matthew quotes Isaiah here, it's the longest quote Old Testament quote that Matthew has in his Gospel, he's actually redefining the concept of Messiah in people's minds and hearts. So many in Jesus' day were expecting Messiah to come and he would come with, with military might. He was going to come as a king and he was going to get rid of the oppressing rulers under Rome. And he was going to raise up Israel to be who they were before under David and Solomon, this mighty nation, God's chosen people. And there were many who came seeking and even claiming to be the Messiah. They will come. We'll make our way. We're going to gather a force and we're going to tell them. Take Barabbas, for example. Remember him at Easter time, don't we? Pilate gave him the option. You want Jesus or you want Barabbas set free? Barabbas was an insurrectionist. He was a robber and a murderer. He was a Messiah figure. He was leading a revolt. In the day, you don't get crucified unless you've committed a crime against Rome. That's how they thought the Messiah was going to come. But Jesus and Matthew here shows us that he comes in a completely different way. Jesus taught as one with authority. He healed and he cast out demons with obvious power from heaven. They didn't squash anybody. Everything he did, he did with compassion. 
He did with deep and genuine concern for the helpless and the downtrodden, for the weak and the oppressed. It's the poor in spirit who are blessed. It's the poor who have had the good news preached to them of the kingdom. Jesus wins his victory not by taking life into his own hands, but by giving his life up, stretching his hands out on the cross. Jesus doesn't come and try to make a name for himself. Did you hear it in the reading? We had a bit of last week's reading read out purposely because we're told the Pharisees went out and they conspired against Jesus how to destroy him. This was their, their plot. They're, they're ready to get rid of him completely. And so Jesus withdraws. He's not going to confront them, not yet. Many followed, many followed and he healed them, but he told them to keep it quiet. Don't make him known. Why? Because he doesn't want to get found out. Well, Jesus is not about making a name for himself. He knows his name is going to be great. He doesn't need people's popularity, status for that. He knows there's going to be a day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. No, he's not about gathering a force of followers in that way. He'd love to gather a force of disciples who believe and who follow him that way. No, he's not going to cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. He's not going to make a big noise about it. He shows his power not by yelling and screaming, but by being gentle and lowly of heart. Not by pulling down those in government, but by raising up those who have died, those in their beds. He humbles the proud and exalts the humble, but he does it with righteousness and truth and love. And this is how Jesus not only compares us as individuals, we, we like to hear these things personally, don't we? And we should. But this is for the nations. This servant, the one I love, my soul is well pleased, I'll put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He's got the whole world in his heart and his mind. He won't quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone. He, he's not going to make a big public profile appearance. He'll quietly go about his business, the business of the kingdom of heaven. And the gates of Hades will not prevail. Here in his name, the Gentiles, the nations, will hope. How often do we need to be reminded of this gentleness of Jesus when we're feeling broken, bruised and battered, empty, Nothing left in the tank running on fumes at the best. That he won't snuff us out. Isn't it a relief to hear this in that context? Isn't it a joy that there's one who will actually come and bear us up and fan into flame that which he's given in the first place within us, his spirit? Even if our faith, as much as we might cling to the bearer, no, he won't snuff us out. No matter how bruised and battered, whether we're self-inflicted or whether it's victims, whether we're victims from others, whether we've tried to stand tall in our own strength or we are desperately crying out for help, he won't squash us. He will come alongside us and help us to stand tall in him and to lean on him, to learn from him and to grow up in faith and hope and love. 
The quote, as we had read for us, actually comes from Isaiah 42. And if you know Isaiah, it's a large book, the prophet Isaiah, and this uh, 42 comes early in the second main section, a section which begins, if you want to open up to Isaiah 40, in chapter 40. A section which begins with these words, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Here's the gentleness and lowliness of Christ's heart. Comfort and tenderness. Israel's been under the threat from Assyria in the north. They're about to get trampled by a pretty heavy force. Been in negotiations and they're trying to work out, do we have an alliance with them? Do we trust God? What do we do? And Judah down the south is watching on. They're trying to work out what they do because they're even smaller still. And later on, they've got to come up with the same, um, they're in the same uh, battle. And even their big brother Israel at the top are on their back. And it would seem from Isaiah 40 onwards that this is after Israel had been conquered and this is for Babylon. And yet if we read Isaiah as one book, it's actually speaking of what's to come, as we heard earlier. I'm telling you what's going to come before it happens. And so the message here is for both Israel and for Judah in Isaiah's day. But it's also for Israel in Jesus' day. And it's for the church, for us today. These words of comfort. I will restore you. I've called you by name. Fear not. Under threat, feeling small and vulnerable compared to the mighty nations of Assyria and Babylon and all the oppression of the world. Already, I'm sure, Israel and Judah feeling like bruised reeds and smouldering wicks. They're not a big nation. <laughs> They're tiny they know they are, and they're weak and they're frail. They can't compete with these military nations, some of the biggest armies ever. They know that men are like grass that just wither and fade. But Isaiah reminds them and reminds us that the word of the Lord lasts forever. Put your trust in him. Yes, the nations are at their doorstep. They are huge and they seem mighty, and yet they're like a drop in a bucket, Isaiah tells them, compared to God. Just a drop in a bucket. Like dust in his hand. It's not they who are going to write the history books, as much as it seems at the time. It's God from the beginning to the end who is actually writing history. That's what Isaiah is telling us. He created the heavens and the earth and all the world rulers. They come under his authority. They're under his sovereign rule. And all these other nations, they've got their own religions. They've got their gods, their pagan gods, their carved images made of wood, made of metal. And what does Isaiah tell them? They're nothing. They're an illusion. They're a deception. They've got no strength. They've got no power. They have no life. God's own people have been tempted to listen to the rulers of these other nations, to actually turn to their gods. They're on the borders and they're creeping in. And it's the same today in our world, isn't it? Not just in the world, but in the church. The idols of our culture creeping in. And they're in our own hearts. And yet have a look twice in chapter 41, verse 24. God tells us about these idols. Behold, he says, they are nothing. Look at them. Whatever carved images, whatever voices, whatever images you're looking at, whatever thing other than me, they are nothing. Their work is less than nothing. That's verse 24. And verse 29, behold, again, make sure you look. Look carefully. They're a delusion. 
Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. An empty wind. They carry nothing with them. Empty ruach. They have no spirit. That's the word. No breath of God in them. No life. They cannot even hold up a bruised reed. How do you fan into flame a dying ember or a smouldering wick? You need breath. But these idols, these other nations, all these other voices, they got nothing. It's empty. They can't bring life to anything. It's futile. And so God puts that, those images and these nations before his people. Look at this. Behold, look at that. They're nothing. And then on the other hand, he says, look, chapter 42, which is what Matthew quotes. Behold my servant. Look at him. You know the ad on TV, the little meerkats? Compare the market. <laughs> That's what God's doing here. Look at this and then compare with this. Behold, they're nothing. They're a delusion. They are empty. They have no breath. And now behold my servant. Whom I uphold, whom I've chosen, my beloved with whom I'm well pleased, I will put my ruach upon him. He has the very breath of God. He's not empty. He's filled with the Spirit of God so that he can fan into flame even the tiniest glimmer of hope and faith within you. threatened by the nations, feeling battered and bruised by life, under the weight of sin and guilt, and your faith and your confidence and your hope diminishing more and more and more. God says you could look at all of these things, that they're nothing, they're not going to help. The only answer, your only hope, is my servant. Look at him. He's the answer to all the threats and to all the opposition. He's the answer to all your weariness and worn out souls. He's the only one who can give you rest, who can give you true counsel. He's the one who will come and redeem sinners, not squash them and condemn them, but redeem them, lift them up out of the miry clay, even from the brink of despair. He alone can bring life and hope into the smouldering recesses of our lives. If you've ever been camping and the fire's been on overnight and you go to bed and get up in the morning and want a hot tea or coffee or something, there's still some embers there in the fire. It's still smoking. If you get a few leaves and you blow on it, you can get that fire going again, can't you? That's what the servant of the Lord does for us when we're feeling like that, getting cold, nothing but a few wisps of annoying smoke and no flame. No, he will not grow faint or weary, Isaiah tells us. He won't be discouraged discouraged until he has established justice in the earth. In him the nations will find hope and light. He's going to bring justice. That's repeated a couple of times in the passage. Justice will prevail, but not by force, not by violence. He won't break the bruised reed. And God is saying, behold... We sang it last week. Behold our God. Look at him. Behold your salvation. 
And as we come to Christmas, that's really what the message of the church should be, shouldn't it? Everyone's enjoying Christmas in Australia. Presents, tinsel, glitter, trees, it's all great. But look at this one. That stuff won't help. Might make you happy for a day, maybe, if you get what you want. But this one, look at him. What is Christmas all about? Why are we celebrating it? We talk about the carols and the stories of the baby in a manger, but what is it about him? Good question to ask around Christmas table. If you're not sure how to answer it, if someone asks you, turn to Isaiah 42, turn to Matthew 12. He's the one who's going to bring hope. No matter how weary you are, and many will be on Christmas Day after getting ready. I don't know if I've shared it here before, but I've sometimes wondered about, uh, you know, when you sit on a plane or you meet, you go to a place where you meet new people and, oh, what do you do? That's one of the first questions. I've often wondered about actually answering that question saying, oh, I'm in the restoration business. To which the answer was, what do you restore? Hope? By sharing the good news of Jesus? Maybe for an interesting comment, maybe at least another couple of sentences rather than saying, I'm a pastor. <laughs> You don't know, ah, oh, nice weather we're having soon after. <laughs> I haven't tried it yet, but I'll tell you if I do how it goes. Christ has come and he will bring hope to us. He won't squash us. And we need it, don't we? Boy, we need it. Justice. How much is our world crying out for justice? How do we think justice is going to come? By getting everything right? telling everyone who's wrong, putting in their in their place? Or by the Messiah coming, the one who won't break a bruised reed, who won't snuff out a burning wick, and will bring justice to the nations, not with a big loud voice, but with a simple Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It's he himself who will be crushed and broken for our iniquities. That's how he brings justice. His life will be snuffed out for us. He will be despised and forsaken and put on the junk heap so that we might have life and hope. You know, later in Matthew's Gospel, we'll get to it eventually next year, when Jesus was arrested, the soldiers dressed him up, didn't they? They made him a mock king to ridicule him. They put a crown of thorns on his head. Do you know what else they gave him? They gave him a reed. A reed in his right hand, we're told. A mock staff, a scepter. You're the king, here's your scepter. This is about how strong you're going to be. But he wouldn't break even that reed. They would. They actually took it from him and struck him with it. They thought that was power. That was might. That's how justice in a nation would prevail. But not Jesus. He wouldn't even cry aloud. He'd go like a lamb to the slaughter. And as they mock him, they said, Hail, King of the Jews. And they had no idea how true they were at that point. This is how the servant of the Lord brings justice. Not by strength, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And he gives us the sure hope 
The sure hope of not being broken. The sure hope of not being snuffed out. Bron shared with me last night. He said, here's a verse for your Christmas, if you haven't thought of one yet, which I think I have, but and I probably won't find it, but it says, blessed is the one who believes the promises of God. What God has promised. It's Mary and Elizabeth. Elizabeth saying to Mary, blessed is the one who believes the promises of God. Do you believe the promises of God to you? In his servant, the one he's chosen, the one he's beloved? That he will not break the bruised reed, no matter how bruised and broken you feel? No matter how much of a burning wick and your flame's gone out? Not even a pilot light left? Believe the promises of God in Jesus. Among all the voices of our day, among all the false gods and idols, not just in the world, as I said, but we pick them up and we carry them, we bear them in our hearts. Among all the empty promises and all the fearful threats, behold my servant. Look at the one I have chosen, God says. Look at him. My beloved, the one in whom my soul delights. He is our hope. In his name, the Gentiles, the nations, you and I, we will hope. Paul tells us, doesn't he, at once, one time we were separated from Christ. Away from God, strangers to the promises of God. We didn't know them. Orphans without a father and with no hope in this world, battered and bruised, barely a flicker of life in us. But now, he says, I think you could sum up the gospel in those two words. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You were once having no hope and without God in the world, but now you have hope and you are with God because of his servant, his son, Jesus Christ. What is it the psalmist sang? We just sang. Why are you downcast, O my soul? That sounds like someone bruised and battered, doesn't it? Barely a flicker of life left in them or faith. And yet there's something, a gift of the Lord that says, No, put your hope in the Lord, for I will again praise him. It's a good word to hear. It's a good word to preach to ourselves, isn't it? Put your hope in the Lord, because he is our hope. And I will again praise him. So why don't we sing it again? And actually sing it to ourselves and to one another. Amen.